This is a No Dama podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and this evening I'm joined by Bob Martin. Thank you very much for taking time out of your evening, Bob. Oh, it's my pleasure. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those that don't know? Oh, heavens, I'm a, uh, a programmer. I, I think I started programming in 1964. Uh, I don't know how many years that makes it, more than 50. Uh, but I've been writing code that whole length of time. I, uh, I've written a number of books. I think the most famous of those is Clean Code. Uh, I was uh, at the uh, first meeting of the Agile Alliance, in fact, the, uh, the meeting where we started it. Uh, I've been, you know, in this industry for a very, very long time. <laughs> and what do you do now? Oh, nowadays I travel the world and yell at people and tell them they're doing things wrong. I give talks, uh, you know, I, I teach classes, I write books, I write articles, and and I write as much code as I can squeeze into that from my own personal edification. And you have a video website as well in the last few years. Yes, yeah, uh, for about four years, cleancoders.com. We sell sell videos of myself and other folks doing lectures and training. For tonight, we're going to talk primarily about your new book, Clean Agile, Back to Basics. It's available on digital download right now, and uh, we're making this recording at the end of September. And I think you said that the hard copies are coming sometime in October? Uh, sometime in the next few weeks. I'm not sure of the date, but it, it will be relatively soon. What inspired you to write this book right now? Deep, deep frustration. <laughs> I was um, I was part of the original group that, that uh, started the Agile... Uh, revolution, if you want to call it that. And, and over the, the last 20 years, I've seen it shift in ways that I, I was not happy with. And I thought it's time for a, um, a rebirth or a rejuvenation of the concepts. It's time to go back to basics and study what it was all really about to begin with. And that leads me very nicely on to my next question. For Again, for people who may not be aware or to get it directly from you, what is Agile? Uh, Agile is a, I like to say it's a small idea uh, that helps small teams uh, execute small software projects or build small software projects. It's uh, a, a, way to, a way for a small software team to be efficient and keep track of their time and keep track of their effort and build software projects without all of the fuss and muss that we experienced um, in the 80s and the 90s. Can you talk a little bit about that fuss and muss? Because that's the history of where Agile came from. So soft, software itself is, is 70 years old, 73 years old, something like that. Uh, just a little bit older than I am. And in the very early days of software, there was no process. There was no science to it at all. It was just a bunch of guys writing code as, in, as best way they could. And, and they stumbled across a way, which I think most humans do when they try to do something complicated. Um, they started moving in small steps. And they would measure themselves after each step and then take the next step and then measure. And these steps were generally very small for for example, the, uh, the avionic software for the Mercury space capsule was written in steps that were about one day long. 
and they would write their unit tests in the morning and they would make them pass in the afternoon or or some schedule like that. Um, so that was a, a common approach in the very early days. And then something happened, and it happened right around 1970. And I have theories about what it was. But a very large, heavyweight process was imposed upon virtually all of software. And it started with the military, and it started with the government, but it very quickly in, infiltrated all of um, all of large companies doing software. And it imposed a set of steps and a set of phases. We called it waterfall in those days. And for 30 years, it dominated software development. Uh, that's just how you did it. And it did not work very well. And then in the late 90s, uh, a group of folks, myself included, began to wonder why we were doing these heavyweight processes and why we were continually failing, and we kind of rediscovered what the original pioneers had had uh, invented for themselves way back in the 50s and 60s. And that, that's really how it all came about. It was, it was a, an act of frustration. Uh, there were guys who had been programming for 30 years who were just deeply frustrated with the way it was going, and we, we managed to somehow all get together in Snowbird, Utah, and have a meeting and come up with this manifesto, this Agile manifesto. Two things I want to ask you. The Mercury, ah. you were saying the Mercury were writing tests first and then writing the software. They were doing test-driven development at that point? I wouldn't call it test-driven development, um, but I would call it test first. Okay. And the, the evidence for this comes out of Craig Larman's book from about 10 years ago, he, he did a, a deep study of how software was done in the early days and then later and then later. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book, um, something like Agile for Managers or something. Uh, but he, des he described all of this. And one of the stories he told in there was about the, the Mercury space capsule. You also said that you suspect you know what happened in the 1970s to bring about this sort of heavyweight process. What yeah. was that? What do you think that uh, was? How much time you have? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so let's give it a go. The short version. Um, give you the short version. There was a time in the software industry when universities were not involved. Uh, they, there were no courses. You couldn't go to university to uh, to learn how to be a programmer. So the programmers that existed at the time pretty much taught themselves. They were kind of thrown into it. Their companies or their their bosses would say, hey, we got these machines. Somebody better program them. And the more technical people kind of learned it. Eventually, however, in the late 60s, the, uh, the university started preparing students. And a flood of trained programmers, all in their 20s, uh, inundated the uh, the field. Now, prior to that, most of the programmers had been in their 30s or 40s or 50s. They'd been around for a good long time. They already understood business. They already understood projects. Uh, they understood how to deal with management. And then in the early 70s, this flood of complete novices roars into the industry. And I imagine that that the, the businesses of the day said to themselves, we've got to have some process to keep these kids under control because they're just running roughshod over everything. 
And I think that was the gateway that opened the the waterfall doors. Interesting. There's much more to that story than I want to go into, but you know, no, that's the short version. No, that's fine. So let's go back to your meeting in Snowbird. Yeah. You yeah. said seventeen if you got together. Did you get yeah. together with an agenda? No, um, not really. Um, it was uh, Martin Fowler and I called the meeting. We, we uh, sent a, an invitation letter out. Alistair Coburn was one of the people invited. He said he had some more people he wanted to add to the list and that he would host it. He set the whole thing up in Snowbird. There was no agenda going into it. The, um, the invitation was, let's talk about lightweight processes. There were factions, not, not uh, an agenda. Uh, the factions were extreme programming, Scrum, feature-driven development, um, S uh, SDS, S I can't remember the name of it, um, SDSM, I want to say, uh, DSDM, I got them backwards, DSDM, and uh, we also invited just some, some uh, independents, people who didn't have an agenda or, or a, a faction, and we got them all together, and we said at the very start, there is something similar about everything we do. Let's write a manifesto about what that similarity is. That was the way the meeting got kicked off. Then uh, I think I read in your book it was a two-day thing. Was it um, a friendly event, an acrimonious event? Did the factions fight for what they wanted? You know, how, how did you compromise and end up with what you got? No, there was, there was never any acrimony. There was never any competition. The factions were not at war with each other. The goal was to try and find out what we had in common. And it was frustrating at first. We went through the normal exercises of, you know, writing ideas on cards and sorting them and, and doing all of the normal kinds of brainstorming things. And then there came a moment, and, and most of us, I think, remember it as being close to the end of the first day, when all of a sudden the concept crystallized. Somebody, um, I think it was Ward Cunningham, but Ward Cunningham thinks it was Martin Fowler, went to the board and wrote these four lines. And it was, it was, it was one of those strange experiences where, you don't, and you don't experience them very often, where a whole room of people suddenly relax. And it's like, oh, yeah. And it was very much like the, the whole meeting was over. Uh, although we had another day of work to do, which was just what the heck to call this thing and, and uh, a little bit of planning. But that was that was kind of the flow of it. Do you ever think back on it as, I don't know, in some way that you as a small group of people have had this incredible, enormous, ongoing influence on millions of people? <laughs> well, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? I'm sure that none of us thought anything was going to come of it. Uh, Ward Cunningham had the brilliant idea that he would take the four lines and a little bit of extra material and put it on a website and ask people to sign it. And and within uh, days or weeks, there were thousands of people signing it. And uh, you know, we all we all just kind of were surprised by that. Uh, we formed the Agile. Alliance out of that, Ken Schwaber and and uh, Mary Poppendick and I and a few others got together and we, we formed the initial Agile Alliance to promote it even more. Uh, and I guess the rest is history. 
it's sometimes presented that prior to Agile, let's say in the waterfall days, you know, a substantial number of projects were failing. Uh, but obviously a substantial number of projects were also succeeding. And then in the Agile days, post, let's say, the manifesto and the adoption, we still have a large number of projects that succeed and fail. But often when you read about Agile, it points to the times in the old days when they used to fail without looking at how they're failing now. What yeah, you, that's true. What do you think about that one? Well, so there are a number of expectations that people have of Agile that that need to be set properly. Uh, even amongst us who, who were the uh, original promoters of Agile, we, we had um, ideas that I think were inappropriate or misstated. Is Agile a way to increase project success? Uh, yes, I suppose it is. But more than that, it is is a way to allow managers to have more control. Agile is a feedback mechanism. It produces data. It produces data on a very regular basis. And primarily it tells the programmers and managers just how messed up they are just how bad things really are. It, it tries to get the bad news out as early as possible. Now, in, in a waterfall environment, that was not the case. So we could go for a very long time in a waterfall environment and not know we were messed up. Uh, in an agile environment, you find that out much sooner. Does that mean that you fail less? Mm, well, probably you do fail less in an agile environment, although... One of one of the ways to succeed is to fail as early as possible. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, at least you get it done, and you haven't spent the time and the money yes. and the other things. Uh, to, to return to your book a little bit, um, there's a line in it. I think it's something along something like this: "Agile was a small idea about a small problem." Yes. But what happened? Because obviously, agile is massive now. And I well, don't mean in adoption, I mean in books, in ceremonies, in certifications, in opinions, in rhetoric, and etc. Small ideas can, it can, be, can have a very large impact. Um, there are a lot of programmers in the world. There's a lot of software projects in the world. And so Agile, of course, because it's popular is going to have a large footprint. That's, that's one part of the issue. In that way, I think it's healthy. That, that kind of large footprint is a healthy footprint. Then there's the unhealthy side of this. And the unhealthy side, and maybe that's, maybe that's not the right word, but it's, um, it's a mutation side, I guess I'd say. Um, there are efforts to make Agile bigger, to add more things to it, to complicate it, to add adjectives to it, to add qualifiers to it, to, to make it for bigger things or make it for non-software things, to make it for hardware, to make it for uh, other things. So there are efforts to try and expand the scope of what Agile was intended to be. And I think that is, if not unhealthy, it is, it is not what Agile started out as. Did you ever envision Agile being part of a person's job title? No. No, no. <laughs> no. I imagine. No, no. 
it was it was a simple idea that people could use to get software projects done. It was not a uh, a title that people would wield. What do you think that do you think it's a necessary title now? No, I think it's deeply unfortunate uh, because it it makes some people special uh, over others. If they have the title, they are somehow special. Uh, and, you know, the idea is too simple for that. From a day-to-day perspective, let, let's go back to some of the basics. From a day-to-day perspective, how should and how does Agile affect a programmer? Well, so the the, the whole idea behind Agile is lots of little feedback loops. Um, so, for example, we will we will have a small team of people, and they will they will plan out a week's worth of effort, a week's worth of work, and inside that week's worth of work, they will execute uh, in increments of minutes. So we might write a little test and then make it pass, and write another little test and make it pass, and and clean up the code a little bit, and then write another little test and make it pass. And all of these are little tiny feedback loops. And they're all measuring something. And by the time you get to the end of a week, you've accomplished some small thing. The team has accomplished some small thing that they can release. They can uh, put it into production or, or if not put it into production, they can set it aside and say it's done. And then, they, then you work on the next batch and the next batch and the next batch on a week-by-week basis. And because of that, Managers can look at that and say, I see how much has been getting done every week. I see how much remains to be done. I can calculate the number of weeks left. And you get a lot of very good information about the progress of the team and the schedule of the project and so forth. Other things, though, on a day-to-day basis that we as developers have to deal with are things like uh, the grooming sessions, the planning, the points, the estimates. Yeah. What's your opinion on those? Well, uh, so that should be simple, like like the the stand up meetings that people have, right? Those should be ten minutes long, right? There shouldn't be any fuss about that. Uh, the 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 planning meeting at the beginning of each iteration, yes, you have to have a planning meeting, but the planning meeting shouldn't be any more than a couple of hours long at most, and you do that once a week. Um, and what people try to do is they try to add too much detail and too much ceremony to an idea that was supposed to be very informal. A planning the, the initial planning meeting should have been, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, and then you're done. So what we've seen over the years is this addition of heavyweight uh, ceremony on top of something that really was supposed to be very simple. Even the idea of the stand-up, my understanding of it was it was to keep a person speaking for a short time, get to the point, move on. It wasn't necessarily that you stood up, it was that you were brief. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was called a stand-up meeting because we thought if everybody was standing up, they'd want the meeting to be quick. They would be brief. But yeah. it has. But people have adopted it, in my, from what I've seen, as one must stand as opposed to one must be brief. <laughs> yeah, well, that's ironic, isn't it? Uh, people take things very literally. Um, and and by the way, stand-up meetings are are not uh, mandatory. You don't have to have them every day. You could have them 
every other day. You could have them once a week. Um, you know, again, the process is informal and it's customizable. You, you, don't, you don't have to follow a regimen. There are certain things that need to be done. Most of the things are kind of fluid, though. You made a comment that Agile gives managers more control, but what I've sometimes seen this leading to is micromanagement. So not more, yeah, so <laughs> more control, yes, it does give them more control because it gives them more data. Now, a manager can use data to micromanage or a manager can use data to set appropriate expectations and guide the project to the best possible outcome. That's a management style. If you want to micromanage, Agile uh, will provide you all the data you need to micromanage the project straight to hell. But if you want to guide the project to a good outcome, then Agile will give you all the data you need to do that. Waterfall did not. Waterfall provided no data at all. And so managers were left wondering, what the devil is going on in this project? And would walk into the programmers and say, how's the project going? And the only answer you'd get is, pretty good. Well, you know, in Agile, you don't get those answers. In Agile, you get numbers. Every week, you get another number. And you can see exactly what's going on and what's getting done and what tests are passing and which ones aren't. And, and then you get to draw your own conclusions as a manager, just how well this project's doing. And then yeah. you can do something about it. Yeah, it's impressive. You're right. The The level of insight and feedback you get with Agile is significantly more. But it isn't necessarily one of the things that I've put a whole lot of thought into until you're, you're, you're highlighting it for me right now. But there is, there is one thought I'd like to, 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 to put to you. I've worked in a variety of teams with Agile and without and or with a, with a kind of uh, a loose Agile. And what I found is that the talented teams, I don't necessarily mean the best programmers, I mean the teams that understood <clears throat> what they were doing, they worked well together, they needed less of the agile ceremonies, yeah. and those that didn't work so well together needed more. And the, the analogy I've drawn for friends of mine is, it's like the difference between the talented chef and me. The talented chef doesn't need a recipe. They can take the ingredients, they can put them together in the right quantity, the right way. They can improvise as needed and come up with a wonderful meal, the best meal. I need a recipe. I'll follow the steps, I'll follow the instructions, and I'll come up with something that's passable. And what I found, again, is like the talented teams don't need the recipe. They know how to do it. And the teams that don't work quite as well together need more of that. And I think that's where... I think that's where a lot of companies make the mistake. They force the recipe on the talented people that don't need it at times. I, I would certainly agree with that. Uh, we used to say early in the in the uh, Agile days, we used to say that, that Agile is the way that programmers were seen to uh, behave in the wild. Uh, if you take a, a bunch of talented programmers and just throw them in a room, what you will observe them doing will be something like Agile, maybe not in detail, but in spirit. They'll work in small cycles. They'll test their code. They'll, they'll clean it up as they go along because that's a very human way to work if you are very experienced in what you're doing. When companies take up Agile, uh, you often see a move by the software development or engineering department to force the company to adapt to that. So, you know, things like deadlines, no, no, no more deadlines. 
What do you think of that approach? It's nonsense. Um, the, the business should not know that the software team is doing agile. They should have no knowledge of that at all. It's, it's, it's none of the business's business. It is just the way that the software team develops software. The, the, the software people should never tell the business that there's, that there's no deadlines. That's insane. Business has deadlines. <laughs> deadlines are very real. And, and you know, sometimes you, you have three months of money and then no one gets paid after that. Sorry, that's a real deadline. Sometimes you've got to deliver a tax, a tax program sometime before April 15th. Those are real deadlines. Uh, and, and real deadlines need to be met somehow. So it's, it's, it's insane to say that agile changes everything about the business. It doesn't. Agile changes the way or guides the way that small teams of programmers can work in a way that gives managers enough information to guide the project to a good outcome, to meet a deadline. What do you do, though, when you come up against uh, the likes of a team of developers, a scrum master who is doing their job, let's say, to, to defend their team, saying, we can't tell you how long something's going to take because, well, we're not doing that upfront waterfall planning. <laughs> yeah, as if you could tell them how long it was going to sure. take if you did. Um, so what we, can tell, what we can tell the business and what we can tell all the managers of the business is that we will start this project. We will plan it out as, as best we can. We will start it. You will be able to measure. And you will be able to measure from the first week. And as the weeks go by, you'll be able to get data points that show exactly what's going to happen or, or you know, what's going to happen within certain limits and give you an idea of what to do. We cannot promise to deliver fixed scope by fixed date. No one can promise that. No one ever should promise that. What we can, do, what we can promise is that with the proper guidance, we can deliver something useful by a fixed date, or we can deliver a fixed scope sometime in the useful future. But that's about the best we can promise, and we can promise to give you the dots that you can connect to figure out which of those two outcomes you'd like. But somewhere along the way, the word commitments became very common with regard to what we're going to provide in a sprint or over a period of sprints. Yes. And obviously commitments and what we're talking about in the last couple of minutes don't go together. Correct. They don't. And commitment was never a concept in Agile. We, we cannot commit because we don't know. So where, uh, where did it come from? Because that's <laughs> one of the things that's highly contrary to your goals. You know, I, I get it. You know, ceremonies build up around things, but something that's the opposite is odd to see. It it. Well, I mean, it has always been there. The, the notion that business wants people to commit, of course they do. If I were a boss and I had a bunch of engineers working for me, I'd want them to commit. And if I could get them to commit, that'd be great. I mean, please commit, guys. And oh, yeah, we'll commit. Now, now it's very foolish for engineers to commit because they don't know. So when an engineer commits based on something they don't really know, they're lying. And everybody knows they're lying. And we should not lie. So 
my my answer to that and the agile answer to that is you you never make a commitment you simply produce every week and allow people to measure there's something that does i suppose bothered me a tiny well more than a tiny bit about agile is that over the last 20 years I've been in the industry uh, pretty much that length of time, we have seen enormous change in our language, the languages we use, the techniques, the frameworks, how we uh, de- deploy software, where we deploy it, look at the cloud. Uh, you know, an enormous amount has changed. What we learned 20 years ago still applies, but you wouldn't use those techniques now. How is it that Agile hasn't been replaced the way all those other things have been replaced? Or why isn't there a competitor to Agile? Because nothing essential has changed. What does change in software are the peripheral things. You know, how, uh, where does the computer live? It used to live on your desk. Now it lives in the cloud. It's still a computer. Um, what language are you using? Well, nowadays we're using uh, Swift. How is that different from another language? Well, actually not very much. Still has if statements, still has while loops, still has assignment statements. The things that have changed are the clothing. The body remains the same. It's still, a, it's still software inside those clothing. And we can change the clothing every day and make it look different and set new fashion styles. But in the end, it's still software. It still works exactly the same way. It, it's worked that way for 70 years, a little over 70 years. Nothing essential has changed. Agile is not about the clothing. It's about the body. It's about what software is. And it doesn't matter what language you're using, and it doesn't matter what platforms, doesn't matter what frameworks, doesn't matter whether you're in the cloud or you're not, because so- the production of software can be done in a, se- a set of little steps and measured and tested and cleaned up through a set of very simple principles that Agile defines, regardless of all that other stuff. When I was doing some research on uh, preparing for this, I tried to find some studies that would show comparisons between, let's say, an approach of uh, agile approach versus a something else approach, some empirical scientific research, and I didn't find very much. Do now, you know of anything out there? Oh, there's some stuff. Um, let's see. Lori Williams wrote a whole book on pair programming, and she had a lot of statistics in that, and. Microsoft and IBM got together and they did a study on on uh, Agile and, and came up with a bunch of interesting data. None of that is particularly important um, because there's no study, there's no scientific study of anything in software. Software is a highly empirical thing. It's, it's a people thing and we don't study it, we do it. Um, so all of the things that we learn, for example, is the cloud better than the non-cloud? Do we have scientific studies that show us that the cloud is better than not using the cloud? Do we have scientific studies that show us that, that Swift is better than Objective-C or Go is better than C++? You know, have we researched this really carefully? Or have we just kind of emotionally gone with it all? <laughs> and, and the answer is we just kind of emotionally went with it all because it felt better. Now, with Agile, I think we, we, we can demonstrate that the production of data on a regular basis is actually very useful. Uh, but scientific studies, no. I wouldn't count anything like that very much. No, nor, nor do I expect any. 
No, it's 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 one of those things that is oddly absent from our engineering scientific discipline studies of how we work, how we do these things. Yeah, I don't know if it's strange. I mean, what other what other um, what other industry or discipline is scientifically studied? No, I don't know. I remember seeing an interview with. I think it was one of the large newspaper uh, CEOs in the UK. And he made the comment that business is either uncontrolled chaos or controlled chaos. And that is the best you can hope for. I think that's probably correct. It's it's a bunch of people, you know, trying ideas, flailing around, sometimes doing things right, most times doing things wrong. What and self-correcting. Sorry, what do you think of the certification um, that's built up around the Agile manifesto and process? There's a long history there. Um, Ken Schwaber came to me one day and said, uh, uh, Bob, I'd like to use one of your classrooms because uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach a course called the Certified Scrum Master Course. And I, I thought it was a dumb idea because I'm a programmer and programmers don't like certification for, of much. Um, but I, you know, I said, go ahead, you can use one of my classrooms. And he did. And of course, it turned into this gigantic rolling snowball and everybody wanted to become certified. What I realized later was that it was not programmers who wanted to become certified. It was project managers who wanted the certification. And, and it was a grand success. I mean, it got loads and loads of project managers to get this certified scrum master uh title that they could add to their resume and it drove the word agile uh, very strongly into the industry it did not drive the concepts of agile very strongly into the industry they kind of followed at a lackluster pace uh, the project managers typically did what they wanted to do anyway uh, so we did not see a big pull of agile concepts into the industry. Some, but not a lot. And in particular, the most important of the agile principles got completely left behind, which were the engineering principles, test-driven development, refactoring, simple design, pair programming. These things just got left behind entirely because the project managers had no context with which to put them. They didn't know what that was. And so we wound up in this in this environment um, where the project managers were the drivers of agile. Ironic because it was the programmers who had invented it, or or at least promoted it originally. And and I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but that's what I think about certification. Is there is there a reasonable certification for agile? I think it would take. In order to certify someone as an Agile developer, I think you'd have to drive them through a semester-long course and give them a big test at the end. I think it'd be 13 weeks of study with a big test at the end and a, and a grade. And not everybody would pass. But that goes counter to the idea of it being a small idea. It does, doesn't it? Hmm. But it's a small idea. So it's an answer to that. The rules of Go, the game Go, mm -hmm. are absurdly trivial. Yes. It's a small game. It is immensely difficult to master. Agile, set of small rules, set of simple ideas. 
very difficult to master, especially, well, all of it, but especially on the engineering side. That there, there are rules in, in Agile, like test-driven development and refactoring and simple design, that you could study for years and years and not get to the bottom of. The rules themselves are simple, but it takes a long time to get through it. I would not want to... I would not want to certify a programmer as agile capable without making sure that at least some of that skills that some of that skill and intuition had been um, absorbed. It's a very tough one to do anyway, because um, sorry, as you were saying it, I was thinking of a comparison though to your comment about the 1970s when you were saying that. The, uh, the agile certification industry started producing these people. It didn't sound that different to what the universities you say were doing. <laughs> well, at least the universities were actually producing programmers. Um, I'm not sure what the, the certified Scrum Master courses were producing. Any final notes before we wrap up for tonight, Bob? Well, so I guess if I wanted to summarize, um, the book I wrote, is, is kind of a rant, uh, kind of a, uh, the frustrating, the frustrations of an old agiler who, who sees the world going in a direction he doesn't like and wants to set it straight. Um, the ideas of agile were simple to begin with. They should remain simple. Uh, so I hope people can read the book and kind of get an idea of, of what agile was supposed to be. And maybe what they, maybe that they can bring agile back into what they were doing compare it to what they are doing and bring it to back back into what they're doing. Anyway, that, that would be my hope. Uh, if people want to learn more about that, uh, there are a couple of websites they can go to. There is my professional website, which is cleancoder.com. Uh, and that's just comes from the word clean code. So cleancoder.com. Uh, and the videos that I, that I sell that talk about all these topics and, and many engineering topics as well. Uh, is the plural of that, cleancoders.com. And if you watch those videos, you'll find them, um, well, maybe a little unique. (laughs) I'll put links to both of those. Um, But there are YouTube videos, though, from conferences and the like that people can go to, I think, as well. Oh, many, many, many. Uh, If you go to my website, cleancoder.com, there's a list of talks there. Uh, And most of those talks have links to YouTube videos that, that are the best of the uh, of the the talks that I've given over the years. At one least final, I think they're the best. One final thing: Where did the Uncle Bob come from? Oh well, um, in 1988, I was a programmer at a company called Clear Communications, and there was another programmer there who's who uh, came up with nicknames for everybody. And I was Uncle Bob. And it was very annoying, right? Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob, what about this? Uncle Bob, what about that? I hated it. It was just, he was an annoying little character. And I, I, I hated the fact that he called me Uncle Bob. I left that company. And nobody called me Uncle Bob. And I started to miss it. It was like, wait, I, nobody's calling me Uncle Bob. I put it in my email signature for uh, maybe four or five months. And then I wound up at a conference at one point and people started yelling at me, hey, Uncle Bob. And I realized I'd made this horrible mistake. 
and I took it out of my email signature in hopes of destroying it, but it never went away. And then I realized that it was probably a good brand name. So now I've adopted it. Hmm. That's how it all started. Well, Bob Martin, thank you very much for your time this Friday evening. You're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 100 with Jeff Glennon, a former Agile coach who left the technology world for the world of beer. Episode 81 with Doc Norton on better Agile metrics. Or episode 66 with Ben Day, who views himself as a therapist for development teams. The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was K by La Taboo from their live album. <laughs>